I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, it's Jamie. Today, I'm re-releasing an episode of Murderish about the tragedy known as the SNS Liquor Store Murders. Thursday, October 27, 1988 was a busy time in McLean County, Illinois. Halloween was just a few days away. The annual intercity football series where local high school football teams would battle each other out was in full swing. And in just 12 days, the November elections would be held. McLean County Coroner William Anderson had just come from the Central Catholic versus University High School football game. Afterwards, he was due to meet with members of his re-election campaign to go over strategies. Before the meeting, Anderson was volunteered by the others to get beer for the meeting. He went to the closest store, SNS Liquors, located at 703 North Clinton Street in Bloomington Normal, Illinois. He grabbed a six-pack and headed home for the strategy session. Just two to three minutes later, after having made it only a few blocks, Anderson's pager went off, alerting him to go back to SNS Liquors. When he returned, he stepped straight into one of the worst tragedies in the town's history. If Anderson had been running just a few minutes later, he likely would have been part of the tragic event. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the tragedy known as the SNS Liquor Store Murders. takes us to Bloomington Normal, which is located in central Illinois and is the county seat of McLean County. Located 135 miles south of Chicago, Bloomington Normal is home to the original Steak and Shake fast food restaurant and Illinois State University, the state's oldest public university. David Davis, personal friend of Abraham Lincoln, who was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court by the former president, once called the town home. As Halloween approached in 1988, residents of Bloomington Normal would experience a real-life tragedy that would end in the death of three of its residents.
When Coroner Anderson arrived back at SNS Liquors, first responders were already on the scene. One victim was confirmed dead, two were in critical condition, and a fourth was wounded but not seriously. Anderson said that when he left the store before the murders, he saw nobody in the parking lot and that he must have missed the shootings by no more than just a few minutes. He identified the deceased victim as 30-year-old Scott Burton, who was a customer in the store. Whitney Cole, 24, had come into the store with Burton and was taken to the hospital in critical condition. Employee Robert Webb, 30 years old, who'd only worked at the store for a month, was also taken to the hospital in critical condition. The fourth victim, store employee Tracy Galt, 22, who'd worked at the store for a few weeks, was well enough to provide police with descriptions of the two perpetrators. On Friday, October 28th, Whitney Cole succumbed to her injuries and died at St. Joseph's Medical Center in Bloomington. Prior to her untimely death, Whitney had been preparing for her wedding, which was scheduled to take place in March of the following year. She and her mother had recently shopped for a wedding dress, one that she would never have the opportunity to wear. The day following the shootings, Robert Webb also died. It was his 31st birthday. He and his wife had a 10-month-old daughter, and he had been planning on adopting his wife's six-year-old daughter from a previous relationship. Whitney Cole was born in Normal, Illinois on November 26, 1963, to parents John and Carol Cole. Her father died when she was just 15 years old. Whitney, the youngest of four children, began working at Bergner's department store in the Eastland Mall in Bloomington during high school. She was still employed there at the time of her death. She and her fiancé, James Hopman, were to be married in March of the following year. Also born in Normal, Illinois on June 12, 1958, to parents Frank and Mary Burton, Scott Burton was the youngest of two children. He had an older brother named Daniel. Scott had worked as an auto mechanic at a car dealership in Bloomington since high school. He loved auto racing and was part of a pit crew for Ronald Rocky Griffin, a friend and co-worker who drove a stock car for the dealerships where he worked. On the night he was murdered, Scott was planning to spend the evening with Rocky to help him prepare for a cookout the next day. Whitney Cole, however, had called Scott and asked him to do something with her instead. The two had been close friends for a long time. Scott canceled his plans with Rocky, opting to go with Whitney to a haunted house. That same night, the two friends made a fateful stop at SNS Liquors before going to see Whitney's fiancé, who was just getting off work. Scott and Whitney would never make it to her fiancé's house. Robert Webb was born in Normal, Illinois on October 28, 1957. His parents, Clarence and Marilyn Webb, had five children, four boys and a girl. After graduating from Bloomington High School in 1976, Roger went on to marry a woman named Minnie Mattingly. Minnie had a daughter, Brandy, age six, and she and Robert had a 10-month-old daughter named Melissa together. Robert was a veteran of the U.S. Army and served in the Illinois National Guard. He taught Sunday school and coached the church's softball team. A few days after the murders, on November 1st, the Bloomington Police Department announced that a task force had been formed to investigate the shootings at SNS Liquors. The task force was led by Bloomington Police Lieutenant Bill Emmett, who was in charge of Bloomington's Criminal Investigations Unit. Ten investigators were named to the force, six from Bloomington, two from Illinois State Police, one from Normal Police, and one from the McLean County Sheriff's Department. Aside from Tracy Galt's description and the sketches that were produced, police had little to go on. No getaway car was seen, and the door-to-door -door canvas of the neighborhood around the store did not provide any additional useful information. On November 2nd, McLean County Crime Stoppers announced that the existing reward for the case 
had increased to $9,150. The public had a huge interest in solving this case, and they donated additional money to go toward the reward. By November 8th, Crime Stoppers announced that the reward was now up to $13,649. According to the president of Crime Stoppers International, Inc. in Albuquerque, New Mexico, this amount was believed to be the highest reward ever offered for a crime in the state of Illinois. After two weeks, the task force had received over 300 tips from the public. Unfortunately, none of them had turned out to be of any significant use. The store had been thoroughly searched for fingerprints, and crime techs worked to compare all findings with what they had on file, looking for matches among convicted criminals. On November 15th, Crime Stoppers announced that the reward had now increased to $15,082. A few days later, the Normal Police Union made a contribution to the special fund for the SNS Liquors case, adding an additional $2,500 which increased the reward to $23,715. Although a record reward figure was being offered, a full year went by without an arrest. During that time, the task force had received over 500 tips and had conducted over 1,800 interviews. Sketches made from Tracy Galt's description had been sent to law enforcement agencies all over the Midwest. Investigators had traveled to St. Louis, Chicago, and Milwaukee to speak with other law enforcement agencies to find out if similar crimes in those areas may be related to the SNS murders. They consulted with police in New Mexico, Florida, Michigan, and New York. Despite these efforts, no solid leads came in over the course of a year, and the task force was decreased from 10 investigators down to just two. On Monday, March 11, 1991, nearly two and a half years after the murders, Bloomington Police Chief Mike Miller and McLean County State's Attorney Charles Raynard held a press conference at the McLean County Law and Justice Center in Bloomington. They announced that an arrest had been made. A 35-year-old Springfield man named Glenn Wilson had been charged with first-degree murder in connection with the SNS Liquors case. Reynard said a second suspect was being sought in connection with the crime. Miller announced that the task force was back up to six investigators, and they would work hard to build a case against Wilson and the second suspect. At the time of his arrest, Wilson was serving an eight-year prison sentence on an unrelated weapons charge. As for what led law enforcement to Wilson and the other suspect, a tip had come in from a man who heard two men talking about the SNS Liquors murders at a party. He gave the names of the men to police, who both said they had gone to SNS Liquors on the night of the murders to try to buy alcohol, but were refused because they were not 21. As they left, they said they saw two other men walk into the store. They provided a description of the two men who walked into the store, which along with other information police had, was enough to arrest Glenn Wilson. After his arrest, Wilson's girlfriend at the time, Margaret Wilson, who coincidentally had the same last name, said he could not have committed the murders because she was with Glenn the entire night. She said, To be point blank, we were in bed doing our thing. These charges are all bogus, a fast setup for someone to take the fall. I know for a fact that Glenn was home with me. This according to a March 16, 1991 article in the Pantograph by Randy Gleason. Wilson's half-brother, Alvin Alexander, was the second person being considered a suspect. When questioned by police, Alexander said he was in Bloomington on the night of the murders and did stay with Glenn, but that he was there to see his girlfriend, and he was asleep in his brother's basement during the crime. On August 1st, however, Alvin Alexander was arrested at his home in Springfield, Illinois, and charged with first-degree murder and armed robbery for his alleged participation in the SNS Liquors murders. Reynard said he would be seeking the death penalty for both suspects.
Are you tired of battling through the dreaded pre-period week or struggling with menopause symptoms? It's time to reclaim control with Estro Control. When I'm not feeling like myself, I'm not able to show up as my best self for my family, my friends, or my podcast team. Luckily, I found Estro Control. The formula is designed to make that time of the month a breeze so you can finally feel like yourself again. And for those battling through menopause or perimenopause, Hormone Harmony is here to help. With their science-backed adaptogenic blend, you can conquer hot flashes, low moods, poor sleep, and more. Happy Mammoth, the company behind Hormone Harmony is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Join the thousands of women who swear by Happy Mammoth's products. It says something that a bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Plus, the adaptogenic blend helps your body adapt to hormonal changes naturally. Whether you're dealing with PMS woes or menopause struggles, Happy Mammoth has you covered. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what women mention over and over in their reviews. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code MURDERISH at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code MURDERISH for 15% off today. On March 2, 1992, Springfield and Bloomington police officers made a third arrest. Margaret Wilson, Glenn's girlfriend, was taken into custody in connection with the SNS murders. Bloomington Police Chief Mike Miller said the department believed Margaret drove the getaway car, but was not directly involved in the murders. Glenn H. Wilson, born on May 26, 1955, grew up in Springfield, Illinois. He was no stranger to violent crime. In 1973, he was convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to one and a half to four and a half years in prison. Three years later, he was released on parole. Just over a month after his release, Wilson was arrested for resisting a police officer and subsequently found guilty of obstructing police the following week. He was quickly released with time served. Less than six months later, in 1977, Wilson was arrested again and sent to prison for an armed robbery where he pistol-whipped an 86-year-old man and poked him in the eye. Wilson attempted to blind the elderly man to prevent him from identifying him. Wilson was given a sentence of 10 to 30 years for that crime. During his time in prison, of which he served less than 10 years, Wilson was cited for rule violations 72 times. He was released in 1986 despite his parole officer describing him as a ticking time bomb. Wilson was again arrested just three months later for a parole violation, but was released in November of 1987 after less than one year. In June of 1989, Wilson was arrested again for possession of a firearm and sent back to prison, where he resided when he was arrested for the SNS Liquors murders. Alvin Alexander, Wilson's half-brother, also grew up in Springfield, Illinois. Born on February 6, 1961, Alexander also had a robust criminal history. He was arrested for burglary at age 12, but only received probation. He was arrested for a second burglary, for which he was sent to juvenile prison. While there, he was caught with burglary tools in his possession. In 1976, at 15, he participated in a grocery store robbery with his brother, Glenn Wilson. Three years later, at the age of 18, he was arrested for aggravated battery and sent to prison. He was released after only serving one year. Three months after his release, Alexander was arrested for burglary again and sent back to prison, where he served less than three years. Two months after his release, he was again arrested for burglary and sent to prison. He was released in April of 1987, about a year prior to the SNS Liquors murders. Tracy Galt, the only survivor, 
was able to describe for law enforcement some of the events of that evening. Galt said that she was at the cash register while Robert Webb was working in a different area of the store. She said Whitney Cole and Scott Burton were in one of the store aisles when the two robbers came in a little after 10.30 p.m. Galt described both of the robbers as being black and one of them being thinly built, between 25 and 30 years old, and dressed in a gray hoodie. She said the other perpetrator was tall, 200 to 220 pounds, older in age, between 30 and 35 years old, and wearing a dark windbreaker. Galt said the two men pulled their guns out and ordered all four of them to the floor. Tracy was then told to empty out the cash in the register and safe. Once she complied, the smaller man hit her in the face with a gun, which caused her to pass out. When she woke up, she saw Webb, Cole, and Burton lying on the floor, and she believed they were dead. Not seeing the two robbers anywhere, Galt said she went into the basement of the store to call for help. At the same time, a customer came into the store. She told him what happened, and he also called 911. In early 1992, Glenn Wilson was about to go on trial. McLean County Circuit Judge W. Charles Witte originally wanted the public defender's office to defend Wilson, but due to a conflict in interest, a private attorney would have to be appointed for Wilson instead. On December 6th, Judge Witte appointed G. Patrick Riley, a private attorney, to represent Wilson. Riley immediately filed a motion to have statements made by Wilson ruled inadmissible. Apparently, his client had made two statements on June 4th of 1989, one before he had his rights explained to him, and a second one after police had explained his rights. After his arrest for firearm possession, Wilson tried to hang himself in his cell because he didn't want to go back to prison. When his suicide attempt failed, he told police that he wanted to talk to them about gang activity in Bloomington Normal in an attempt to avoid prison. According to a February 15, 1992 Pantograph article by Scott Richardson, when asked about the SNS Liquors murders, police said Wilson responded, Everyone knows who did that. They were bad people. And that wasn't supposed to happen. That was a spur-of-the-moment thing. Wilson went voluntarily with police to SNS Liquors and made incriminating statements without having been read his rights. At the crime scene, when he pointed to the spot where he had parked his car, officers knew he could not have seen what he claimed to. When they confronted him with this, Wilson said that he had been at the front of the store, then he said he was at the doorway, and finally, that he had acted as a lookout. Police noted all of Wilson's incriminating statements, apparently, without advising him of his rights. After consulting with the state's attorney's office about it, the officers then explained Wilson's rights to him and took a second statement. On March 6, 1992, Judge Witte denied Riley's motion for a change in venue. He said vast coverage of a case does not mean that it has to be moved, and that if, during the jury selection, an impartial jury cannot be found, they would revisit the change of venue motion. Glenn Wilson's trial began on May 4th of 1992. Charles Raynard, McLean County State's attorney, would try the case alone for the state. During his opening statement, Raynard told the court that Wilson had confessed to two men in prison that he had been involved in the murders because he needed the money for drugs. $1,594.25 had been taken from the cash register that night. Raynard called Tracy Galt, the only survivor, to the witness stand. Galt testified that Alvin Alexander forced her up off the floor and made her empty the register and the safe. As for Glenn Wilson, she told the jury that she was not able to get a good look at him. Lois Hamilton, a friend of Wilson's, testified that he told her several months after the murders that he drove the getaway car that night. She said she called him a liar, but Wilson just smiled. According to the state's case, Wilson told numerous people he had some level of involvement in the crimes. 
Raynard called four witnesses who all testified that Wilson told them he took part in the murders. Richard Humber, a polygraph consultant, said on the stand that Wilson told him in June of 1989 that he was paid $500 to be the lookout for three men who committed the crimes. Humber testified that Wilson identified the three perpetrators by their last names only, Smith, Jones, and Harris. Floyd Brown, a friend of Wilson's, said the defendant told him that he was present during the crimes, but he didn't kill anyone. Robert Farisee, a former inmate who was incarcerated with Wilson at Western Illinois Correctional Center, said he admitted to him that he murdered someone during the robbery, saying that he and someone else robbed the store for money to buy crack. John Daniels, Wilson's former cellmate, testified that Wilson admitted to being present during the crimes and had the murder weapon, but he did not admit to being the shooter. Bloomington detective Daniel Katz testified that Wilson said he saw the bodies of two men on the floor of SNS Liquors while standing in the doorway as three other men committed the crimes. Katz said that Wilson claimed that one of the bodies was near the railing and the other body was by the counter with his head on a rubber mat. Katz and Reynard said that only the killers, police, medical personnel, or Tracy Galt could have known these specific details. Katz testified that Wilson also gave first names to the three men he had talked about being the lookout for, and whom he'd only identified previously by last name. Katz told the jury that Wilson said that Charles Smith, Gary Jones, and Al Harris had committed the murders. It is unclear whether these three names Wilson gave were real people or just made-up names. Regardless of Wilson's claim, those three names were never connected to the SNS crimes. On Friday, May 8th, Renard called three witnesses to the stand who said they saw Glenn Wilson with another man in front of SNS Liquors right before the murders. John Combs, Lavelle Harris, and Susan Crutcher had been trying to buy alcohol that night, but none of them were of age. They parked their car across the street from SNS Liquors. Crutcher stayed in the car, and Combs and Harris went into the store and tried to buy alcohol but were refused. When they came out, they looked for someone to buy alcohol for them. They saw two men, one of whom they identified as Glenn Wilson. Combs said that when he asked Wilson to buy alcohol for them, he said, no, it's against the law. Harris also testified that Wilson turned them down, saying, we don't want no trouble with the law. Although survivor Tracy Galt didn't get a good look at Wilson, Susan Crutcher said she was certain that Wilson was the man she saw that night. Raynard asked her to step down from the witness stand and look for the perpetrator in the courtroom. In what was certainly a dramatic moment, Crutcher walked to the table where Wilson was, then back to the witness stand, turned around to face the defendant and pointed directly at him. On cross-exam, Defense attorney Riley said it was late at night, around 10.30 p.m., and the only light would have been from the streetlights, making identification difficult. Riley asked Crutcher, You positively believe you can identify Glenn Wilson as the man you saw? Crutcher replied, Yes. Riley grilled her on the stand, asking, 30 seconds and three and a half years ago and you are willing to testify you can positively identify Glenn Wilson? Crutcher answered, Yes, I am. I have a good memory for faces. This according to a May 9, 1992 article in the Pantograph by Scott Richardson. Margaret Wilson's son, Jarmaine, who was 12 at the time of the murders, was called to testify. He told the jury that he was home on the night of the murders and saw Glenn Wilson point a gun at his mother and say, if you don't drive the car, bitch, I'll kill you. He said that he and his mother went to SNS Liquors in one car, while Alvin Alexander was in another vehicle. Jarmaine said that he was told to get down in the back seat, so he could not see where they were going. He said that Wilson and Alexander left the cars they were in, and when Wilson returned to the car, he said, hurry, hurry. 
according to that same article in the Pantograph. During closing arguments on May 11th, Reynard said that Glenn Wilson was a homicidal monster whose own statements made to police, friends, and fellow inmates showed that he knew details that had never been made public before, details that only one of the killers could have known. Reynard said that Wilson's motivation was obvious. He needed money for drugs, and committing robbery was the way to accomplish that. As far as the reason the robbery turned into murder, Reynard had a theory. He claimed that Glenn Wilson recognized Robert Webb, one of the employees at SNS Liquors. When Webb worked at People's Drugs in downtown Bloomington, Wilson was a frequent customer. Reynard alleged that Wilson knew that Webb would recognize him, saying, Robert Webb was Glenn Wilson's ticket back to prison. Webb could link him to an armed robbery, and it was at that moment he knew he had to execute him. This according to a May 12, 1992 article in the Pantograph by Scott Richardson. Wilson's attorney, G. Patrick Riley, focused on the lack of evidence against his client. He said that Tracy Galt identified Alvin Alexander, but could not identify Wilson. There were no fingerprints or shoe prints that tied his client to the scene. He also claimed that the identification of Wilson by Combs, Harris, and Crutcher was faulty. I, after only three hours of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict. Judge Witte pronounced Glenn Wilson guilty on all six counts of first-degree murder and one count of armed robbery. Wilson and his attorney opted not to make a statement after the verdict was read. The victims' families were happy with the verdict. According to a May 12, 1992 article in the Pantograph by Roger Miller, Robert Webb's mother said after the verdict, I'm just glad they got him. Scott Burton's father, Frank, expressed his thankfulness to the jury, saying, I'd like to hug them all. C.J. Stolfa, the owner of SNS Liquors, hugged family members and police officers after the trial. Task Force Commander Bill Emmett was happy, but knew it was only the beginning. They had more work to do before this case would come to a close. The jury immediately went into deliberations to decide whether Wilson's charges met the criteria for the death penalty under Illinois law. In 1992, Illinois allowed the death penalty for defendants convicted of multiple murders, murder while committing another serious crime, and or particularly heinous crimes. If the jury decided that Wilson's crimes did qualify him for the death penalty, a sentencing hearing would be scheduled where the prosecution and defense would call witnesses to testify as to whether Wilson should be executed. After the sentencing hearing, if the jury decided Wilson was eligible for the death penalty, Illinois law allowed him to choose whether the judge or the jury would determine whether or not he would receive the death penalty. On May 12th, the jury determined that Wilson was eligible for the death penalty. Judge Witte scheduled a sentencing hearing to begin the next day. Wilson decided to put his sentencing fate into Judge Witte's hands instead of the jury's. At the sentencing hearing, Reynard called witnesses first. He began by calling family members of the victims. Frank Burton spoke about how much his son Scott loved to hunt and fish. Carol Cole said how she was looking forward to her daughter Whitney's wedding in March and said that her daughter, who had worked at Bergner's department store since high school, was about to be promoted to department manager before she was murdered. Minnie Webb, Robert Webb's widow, spoke about how much he loved her and the girls and how he was planning to adopt her daughter, Brandy. Next, Reynard called Lex Bittner, a criminal intelligence specialist for the Illinois State Police, who went over Wilson's criminal history. Two teenage boys also testified at the hearing, claiming that Glenn Wilson had sexually abused them. Finally, Reynard told the court about Wilson's statements to police, providing very specific information about the robbery and murders. He said that only someone who was present could have known those details. 
On Monday, May 18th, Judge Witte, in what he called the most unhappy duty he ever had to perform, sentenced Glenn Wilson to death. According to a May 19, 1992 article in the Pantograph by Scott Richardson, Judge Witte said of the murders, These acts of violence were not isolated. Every person in his lifetime is responsible for his own actions. Along with the offenses discussed during the sentencing hearing, the judge noted that Wilson's problems began long before he became an adult. When Wilson was 12 years old, he threatened a teacher with a hammer. At age 14, he tried to burn his school down. After filing and losing three appeals, Wilson got a new attorney who in 2002 appeared at a meeting in Springfield in front of the Illinois Prisoner Review Board. The board was charged with determining which prisoners to recommend for clemency to Governor George Ryan. Wilson's attorney argued that his sentence should be changed to life without parole because Wilson was mentally challenged and suffered from brain damage due to epileptic seizures. On January 11, 2003, Two days before he left office, Governor Ryan commuted all death sentences in Illinois to life without parole, including Glenn Wilson's. Today, Glenn Wilson is inmate A77521 at the Pontiac Correctional Center, a maximum security prison in Pontiac, Illinois, a small town about 35 miles northeast of Bloomington. On July 6, 1992, Alvin Alexander's trial began in McLean County after Judge Witte ruled against a motion for a change in venue. The judge appointed Richard Koritz from the Public Defender's Office to represent Alexander. State's Attorney Reynard again tried this case alone. Just like the case against Glenn Wilson, there was no physical evidence to link Alexander to the crimes. Police could not match his fingerprints or shoe prints to any that were found at the scene. However, like Glenn Wilson's case, Reynard had a good circumstantial case against Alexander, with witnesses who saw him at the scene or whom he told he had participated in the crime. Tracy Galt again testified that Alexander was the one who forced her to empty the cash register and safe on the night of the murders before hitting her in the face with a gun. Koritz told the jury that Alexander was at his girlfriend's house in Bloomington the night of the murders and that his girlfriend, Elaine Henry, would testify to that. He said that his client was being made to look guilty because he was related to Glenn Wilson, who had already been convicted. Koritz had filed a pretrial motion to prevent Tracy Galt's identification of his client from being admitted at trial which Judge Witte denied. Galt took the stand on July 13th. When Reynard asked her if she saw one of the gunmen in the courtroom, according to a July 14, 1992 article in the Pantograph by Scott Richardson, she pointed to Alexander and said, I believe it's that man sitting next to the defense attorney. Galt said that she could not identify Wilson because she was further away from him during the robbery but she saw Alexander when she turned towards him just as he hit her in the face with his gun. She said on the stand that after she saw a video of Alexander, she recognized his ear, which she described as slanted back. She also recognized how Alexander slurred some of his words when he spoke in the video, like he did during the robbery. On cross-exam, Koritz was able to create some doubt about the viability of Galt's identification of Alexander. Koritz got her to admit that she had identified a different person in a lineup as someone who may have been the smaller of the two robbers and that she failed to identify Alexander in a 1991 lineup. On July 14th, Illinois State Police sketch artist Gary Snyder was called to testify. Snyder had drawn the sketches of the two SNS liquor suspects from the descriptions given to him by Tracy Galt. He said Galt was tired and upset when she gave the descriptions of the two suspects, which may have accounted for the sketches only being similar to the defendants. On July 15th, John Combs, 
Lavelle Harris, and Susan Crutcher testified that they had tried to buy alcohol from two men outside SNS Liquors the night of the murders. They had identified Glenn Wilson during his trial. John Combs said he believed Alexander was the second perpetrator, but was not sure because of the poor lighting. Harris and Crutcher could not positively identify Alexander either. On July 16th, Reynard called seven witnesses who testified that Alexander admitted to taking part in the murders. Billy Sims and his wife, Sheila, said that Alexander was at their home in November of 1989 and admitted to the murders. According to a July 17, 1992 article in The Pantograph by Scott Richardson, Sheila Sims said Alexander said, Hell yes, I'm guilty. Glenn shot two people and I shot one. Robin Pearson and Samuel Reed, friends of Alexander's, testified that they went with Alexander to Peoria in April of 1990 to buy cocaine, at which time Alexander admitted that he was involved in a robbery for drug money and that he had to kill people because one of the men knew them. Reynard also introduced a blood-stained jacket that Alexander's sister and brother-in-law said Alexander gave them in 1989. Apparently, he told them it had been taken from one of the victims. A forensic exam found human tissue and blood on the jacket, but not enough to determine the blood type. This was before significant advances in DNA testing had been accomplished. On July 17th, Margaret Wilson, Glenn Wilson's girlfriend at the time, was called to testify. She said Glenn Wilson had been living with her at her apartment at 808 West Olive Street in Bloomington. On the night of the murders, she said Wilson threatened her with a gun if she didn't drive him to S&S Liquors. She said she drove the car with Wilson and her son Jarmaine, and Alexander rode in another car that she thought was driven by Howard Wilson a brother of Alvin Alexander and Glenn Wilson. Margaret said Howard showed up earlier that day at her apartment with a duffel bag containing guns. She continued saying that Glenn Wilson told her to pull her vehicle over across the street from S&S Liquors. She said that he got out of the car and went to meet up with Howard and Alexander. She described Alexander as wearing a hooded sweatshirt which was consistent with Tracy Galt's description of what he was wearing that night. Margaret said she waited about 20 minutes until Glenn came back. He then got in the car and told her to go. The only landmark she said she recognized was the Mr. Quick restaurant on North Clinton and Washington Street, just a few blocks south of S&S Liquors. Margaret's son, Jarmaine, was also called to testify at Alexander's trial. His testimony was consistent with his mother's, that she had been forced to participate at gunpoint. Jarmaine testified that he did not see where they went, as he was told to put his head down during the drive. Jerry Miller, Alexander's friend, testified that Alexander told him he had done something bad, saying, this is the big one. I told Glenn not to do it, but we got to go on with it. According to a July 18, 1992 article in The Pantograph by Scott Richardson, Koritz presented his entire defense in one day on July 20th. He called Elaine Henry, Alexander's girlfriend, who testified that on the night of the murders, Alexander was at her apartment with her watching TV. While they were doing so, she said her brother Warren Henry, who lived a block away, came running over to tell them that he had heard about the murder of Robert Webb on the radio. Elaine testified that she and her brother knew Webb from when he worked at People's Drugs and that he lived in the same apartment building as one of their brothers. Both Elaine and Warren testified that they were sure it was 10.30 p.m. because the TV was on and they heard the theme song of the Arsenio Hall show playing. On cross-exam of Warren Henry, Reynard pointed out that someone who showed identification as being Warren Henry had been interviewed by police at 10.30 p.m. at a restaurant near S&S Liquors. Reynard made the point that Warren could not have gone to his sister Elaine's house at that time when he was talking to investigators at 10.30.
Although someone had shown Warren Henry's ID to identify themselves to investigators, on the witness stand, Warren denied that it was him. Reynard called to the stand Jean Pavelka, the production manager for WYZZ-TV, Fox affiliate, who testified that the Arsenio Hall show did not begin airing until January of 1989, over two months after the murders occurred, effectively countering the testimony of Elaine and Warren Henry. Reynard also called Linda Day, Alvin Alexander's sister, who testified that Elaine Henry told her in 1991 that she lied to the grand jury and that it was her brother Gregory Henry, not Warren, who told her and Alexander about the murders the following morning. On July 23rd, after seven hours of deliberation, the jury members were ready to deliver their verdict. They convicted Alvin Alexander of first-degree murder and armed robbery for his role in the crimes at SNS Liquors. The jury were sent back into deliberations to determine whether Alexander's crimes met the criteria under Illinois law for the death penalty. It took the jury only 10 minutes to decide that he was eligible. Unlike his brother, however, Alexander elected to let the jury decide his fate. Reynard began the sentencing hearing by saying that he believed Alexander deserved the death penalty, just like Glenn Wilson. Then he began calling family members to the stand to further his point. Robert Webb's widow, Minnie, told the jury that she met Robert while both worked at a hospital in Bloomington. He wanted to be a police officer, but was unable to because of a knee injury. He became a security guard instead and worked various jobs in town before taking the job at SNS just a few weeks before his murder. Robert's mother, Marilyn Webb, testified next. She told the jury that she suffered a nervous breakdown on the first anniversary of her son's death and had not been able to return to her job full-time because of anxiety attacks. Whitney Cole's mother, Carol, testified that she was so looking forward to her daughter getting married and that the two had gone to stores to try on wedding dresses before her murder. Scott Burton's father, Frank, described his son as a big brother to a lot of people. He said Scott began working at an auto dealership in high school and later became a mechanic. He was also part of a pit crew of one of his co-workers who raced a stock car sponsored by the dealership. In hopes of evoking empathy from the jury, defense attorney Koritz called a therapist to testify about Alexander's dysfunctional family. The therapist said that Alexander was one of seven siblings, each with a different father. She said that when Alexander was three, he saw his mother shoot and kill her boyfriend with a shotgun. On July 25th, the jury had reached their decision. When Judge Witte asked Alexander if he had anything to say, he merely told the jurors, I didn't kill nobody and I wasn't in on no murders. According to a July 26, 1992 article in The Pantograph by Scott Richardson, Alexander was then sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole after the jury was unable to reach a unanimous decision on the death penalty. After his sentencing, there were mixed feelings among the victim's family members. Jackie White, Whitney Cole's sister, said that she felt more sympathy for Alexander because Wilson was the actual murderer, but she pointed out that he knew his brother had a propensity for violence and he still hung around him. Scott Burton's father, Frank, expressed disappointment with the sentence, but acknowledged that at least Alexander could not harm anyone else. Robert Webb's mother, Marilyn, seemed satisfied with Alexander's sentence, also expressing relief that he couldn't cause harm to anyone else. Two appeals were filed on Alexander's behalf after the trial concluded, both of which were denied. On July 9, 2002, Alexander's attorney filed a motion to have DNA tests performed on the blood-stained jacket that may have belonged to one of the SNS Liquors victims. By that time, DNA testing technology had come a very long way. In 2001, the Illinois Supreme Court ruled that defendants have the burden of proving that DNA testing is materially relevant to their claim of innocence for evidence to be tested. With that, 
the motion was denied. Today, Alvin Alexander is inmate A98206 at Pontiac Correctional Center, where his brother Glenn Wilson is also serving his life sentence. On June 25, 1992, Margaret Wilson's attorney, Gary Johnson, announced that she had accepted a plea bargain to serve five years for her involvement in the murders. On August 20, 1992, it was announced that another arrest had been made in connection with the SNS murders. Police arrested Howard Wilson, who was the brother of the previously convicted Glenn Wilson and Alvin Alexander. Born on January 5, 1953, Howard had numerous arrests under his belt from 1982 to 1992 for aggravated assault, theft, battery, and unlawful use of a weapon. Interestingly, Margaret Wilson, who'd taken a plea deal for her role in the murders, had dated Howard Wilson prior to dating his brother, Glenn. Howard had been at a training school in Columbus, Ohio, learning how to drive semi-tractor trailers when police caught up with him. They drove him back to the McLean County Jail, where he was denied bail. On August 20th, Howard Wilson called the pantograph from the McLean County Jail and admitted that he drove his brothers twice to a liquor store in Bloomington on October 27, 1988, but that they only went to buy alcohol and no robbery or murders were committed. He proceeded to proclaim his innocence during the phone call. On November 5th, Judge Witte assigned Gary Morris, a private attorney from Peoria, to represent Howard Wilson. Morris quickly requested a change in venue as he believed it would be impossible for his client to receive a fair trial because of the publicity the case had received during his brother's trials. Despite this effort, Judge Witte would later deny the motion for a change in venue. As Howard Wilson and his attorney prepared for trial, sadly, SNS Liquors closed its doors after decades of being in business. On December 31, 1992, C.J. Stolfa, the store owner, closed the doors for the very last time. The murders had become associated with the name of the store, and the business never quite recovered. Previous to being charged in connection with the murders, state's attorney Reynard had come to an immunity agreement with Howard Wilson in early 1992, which allowed him to avoid prosecution if he helped solve the murder case. As part of the agreement, Howard needed to be truthful with police, tell the truth as a witness in court, and pass a polygraph exam. On March 18th, however, Judge Witte ruled that Howard violated the immunity agreement, saying that because Wilson did not live up to his part, the agreement was void and Reynard could charge him. During opening arguments on March 19th, Reynard said that Howard Wilson didn't merely drive his brothers to a liquor store, unaware that they planned to rob it. He said Howard was the wheelman and that he gave statements to police showing that he knew much more about the murders than he originally claimed. Defense attorney Morris said that his client drove to Bloomington to attend a party with family. He said Howard and his brothers made two trips to a liquor store because they ran out of alcohol. During the second trip, he said that Howard drove Alvin Alexander while Glenn Wilson, Margaret Wilson, and Margaret's son went in another car. Morris said that that was the extent of Howard's involvement. Morris said that after Alexander returned, Howard drove back to the home on West Olive Street and then went back to Springfield. He said Howard had no idea that his brothers robbed the store and murdered three people while he waited in the car. During a courtroom break, one of the deputies told Judge Witte that he thought Howard was writing notes and hiding them on his body. He believed the defendant was communicating with somebody in the courtroom and thought he showed a note to someone that said, get rid of automatic weapons. Notes were found on Howard, but not the one the deputy thought he saw about automatic weapons. Instead, 
Notes found on Howard included a threat to Bloomington detective Daniel Katz, who had testified before the courtroom break. According to a March 21, 1993 article in the Pantograph by Melinda Zur, the note said, You forget, I've been to your house, Katz, and I know where your little girl goes to school. You're a walking dead man, I promise you that. To explain this note, Howard told Judge Witte that he was bored and wrote the note just to be doing something. Howard's threats didn't stop with those notes. Officers at the McLean County Jail had to restrict Howard's phone privileges after he was heard making threats against state's attorney, Raynard. On March 22nd, Margaret Wilson testified. She said Howard Wilson came to her house the night of the murders with Glenn Wilson and Alvin Alexander. She said Howard had a duffel bag with three guns in it. She said she drove one of the vehicles, but didn't remember who drove the other one. Margaret said the second vehicle belonged to Wilson's girlfriend. Then, Howard Wilson took the stand in his own defense. Morris attempted to keep his client's testimony focused on his family, such as him being one of 22 children, but things would go awry. On direct exam, when Morris addressed the murders, Howard admitted to being guilty of perjury, but said he was not guilty of anything else. Much to Morris's dismay, Howard's behavior started to become a major distraction to the court. According to a March 25, 1993 article in the Pantograph by Melinda Zur, Howard said to Reynard at one time, You're standing there, man, twisting my words, and I'm not in a very good mood. He also called Reynard a racist for making a plea deal with Margaret Wilson, the only white defendant, saying, So I lied. Margaret's been lying for the past three years. It's because I'm black and she's white. You're a fucking racist. In his closing statement on March 25th, Reynard told the jury that Howard Wilson admitted driving the second getaway vehicle and provided the weapons used in the murders. Morris said in closing that his client did lie about the robbery and did admit to being the driver of the second vehicle, but he had no idea about his brother's plan to rob S&S Liquors. The jury deliberated until the evening and informed Judge Witte that they had reached a verdict. Howard Wilson was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder and one count of perjury. His sentence was automatically life without the possibility of parole. Howard, who had his feet shackled, sat at the defense table. When he heard the verdict, his head dropped. Reynard and the victim's family members expressed relief afterward because the SNS Liquors case had finally come to an end after almost four and a half years. Three appeals were filed on Howard's behalf subsequent to his trial, all of which were denied. Today, Howard Wilson is inmate A10506 at Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill, Illinois a small town about 100 miles northeast of Bloomington. On May 6th, Crime Stoppers announced that the reward for the SNS Liquors case, which had reached $25,000, would be split between three unnamed individuals. One would receive $15,000, one would receive $7,500, and the other would receive $2,500, based on the information they provided to help solve the case. Scott Burton's mother, Mary, said after the trial that she and her husband, Frank, were grateful for the work put in by police, the state's attorney's office, and Judge Witte. Mary Burton died on January 17, 2011, at the age of 84. Frank died three years later at the age of 86 on October 27, 2014, 26 years to the day after the murders. Whitney Cole's sister, Jackie White, died on May 3, 2011 at the age of 60. Her mother, Carol Cole, died on January 27, 2013 at the age of 81. Robert Webb's mother, Marilyn, who expressed relief that her son could rest in peace after justice was served, still resides in Bloomington today. Webb's father, Clarence, died on March 29, 2005 at the age of 78. Webb's widow, Minnie, 
lives in Leroy, Illinois, a small town just outside Bloomington. Task Force Commander Lieutenant Bill Emmett expressed that a case like this is hard to escape and that he thinks about it often. Emmett retired from the department after 27 and a half years in March of 1993 after a knee injury put him on disability. He and his wife Doris later started a horse breeding business. After she passed away, Emmett moved to Texas. Tim Linksy, who became Bloomington police chief when Mike Miller retired in August of 1992, was one of the officers who responded to the scene on October 28, 1988. He has never gotten over seeing the dead bodies as he peered through the store's front entrance doors. Linksy served as chief until June of 1997 when he retired after 27 years with the department. He and his wife moved to Fort Myers, Florida. Then-defense attorney G. Patrick Riley now practices law in Eureka, Illinois, a small town in between Bloomington and Peora, Illinois. Richard Koritz remained with the Public Defender's Office until 1996 when he ran for and was elected state's attorney for DeWitt County, just south of Bloomington. He served one term and then lost in 2000. He won the office back in 2008 and retired at the end of his term in 2012. His son, Carl, an assistant state's attorney in Koritz's office, is now the DeWitt County state's attorney. The SNS murders presented Charles Reynard with his first death penalty case, which made it that much more memorable for him. Reynard remained with the McLean County state's attorney's office until 2002 when he was elected to the 11th Judicial Circuit. He stayed on the bench through the end of 2015 when he retired. Judge W. Charles Witte did not sleep much the night before Glenn Wilson's sentencing. Like Reynard, it was his first death penalty case. He said he relied on the law to set the parameters and the judges and juries that came before him to set the guidelines that led him to his decision. He expressed afterward just how difficult that time was for him. Judge Witte retired in 2001 after serving on the bench for 23 years. He died of cancer in April of 2016 at the age of 74. When SNS Liquors filed for bankruptcy, the building sold to Hometown Video. According to a July 21, 1993 article in the Pantograph by Bill Flick, Store owner C.J. Stolfa said, I'm just happy the people who did this have been found, prosecuted, and will be prevented from ever being able to do it to anyone else. For a long time, I was bitter, very bitter for what it had done. It eats at you until you can't stand it anymore, and I feel terrible, terrible about the tragedy and those young people that died and their families. Stolfa launched a catering business after closing SNS, and in 1997, he opened a highly successful restaurant in Bloomington called CJ's. Stolfa died in April of 2011 at the age of 68. Hometown Video, which operated in the SNS Liquors property, closed in November of 1995. The building was empty until January of 1999 when it became a daycare center. In October of 2002, the building was empty again when the daycare center moved to another location. In October of 2003, the property became home to a church which remained until 2011 when it moved to another location. After three years, another daycare center moved in but soon went out of business. Today, the building remains shuttered and empty a reminder of the horror that occurred that October night in 1988. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, and more. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, tell a friend about Murderish or write a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Steve Field. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, 
listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.